Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Blessed, blessed are the Lego masters, for they will rediscover their childhood delight is not one of the Beatitudes, but I think it could be. As a complete Lego nuffy, I absolutely love this show. Are there any other Lego Masters fans in the house? Come on, let me see you up high and proud. It is, a, it, is one, it is the best reality TV show you can ever watch. It's the most fun. It's the least annoying. It's the most happy. There's no sniping. There's no conniving. There's no undermining. Every one of the contestants are friends. They encourage each other to do their best every single episode. It is not like the reality TV that some of us in our sin and in our sickness like to watch and get pleasure from all these people hating on each other and whatever else. I'm not judging you today. Maybe I am. And there is no more emotional judge in reality TV than Brickman. Every time he has to send someone home, he cries. You know, if, you, if you haven't watched Lego Masters, find an episode, and when he, an elimination episode, and when he sends the contestant home, he always does it while weeping. The last episode I watched was particularly emotional. Every competitor in tears as David and Gus were sent packing. It's, it's, you know, I watched this on Catch Up, so we watched this with our kids. And I said to Brooke, you have to watch this episode because she was working the night we watched it. And as I watched it again, as she watched it, we looked at each other. I'm not crying, you're crying. But we were weeping. There were tears coming down our eyes. I thought, and I, I thought to myself, how is a show that is filled with so much joy and bliss, how could a show like that produce such deep emotion. I mean, it's just Lego. It's meant to be fun, meant to be exciting. It's not meant to put tears in your eyes. And I found myself asking as tears streamed down my own cheeks, what on earth is going on here? But as I thought more deeply about it, I started to develop a bit of a theory as to why everyone gets so emotional when someone leaves Lego Masters. These contestants have known weeks, if you last a while, of absolute bliss, absolute bliss. They are clearly talented when it comes to Lego. Like you don't, I, I don't go on Lego, just because I played with Lego as a kid, I don't go on Lego Masters, okay? It would be horrible, it'd be very embarrassing and I'd get voted out and Brickman would not cry as he <laughs> sent me home because he'd like, how did you even get here in the first place? But these guys are talented. These guys are gifted, they have a passion for Lego. So when they walk in and they go into the brick pit, they are in absolute heaven. They know a bliss and a joy like nothing else. They're given hours and hours to play with Lego. And you know, if you're a Lego nuffy like me, when you're at home on the floor with your Lego, not that I do it anymore, I'm thinking of years and years and years ago, you're looking for that piece and you just can't find it. You can't find the piece you're looking for because it's in a mess. That's not Lego Masters. You go in, you know exactly where you'll find that piece. You know the colour, you know the size, you go in, you find it and there it is. Everything you need right at your fingertips. This is bliss. This is pure joy. This is heaven for Lego masters. But then, then when it comes to an end, there is mourning. There is sorrow. The blessing runs out. The bliss comes to an end. Maybe, maybe you've known a time or season like this. Maybe there's been a time where you would say, oh, I was absolutely loving life when I went on that holiday. 
I was absolutely loving it when I started that new job or when I started a new romantic relationship. Man, every moment was like bliss and heaven. When we moved into that new house and everything was new and exciting, but then it either comes to an abrupt end or it just tapers and fades out and the reality of life comes and all, everything that was blessing is now mourning for what was as the plane touches down in Brisbane and you make your way home. As maybe the, the person who you had your eye on, who you were courting, you went on a few dates and then end up saying, it's not you, it's me. Maybe the job that you had that was so exciting, the money ran out and you had to find a new job. Or maybe you had to move out of the house that was your household, your, your, your housing dream. I think all of us have known moments of bliss that come to an end and that's where mourning can set in. And I reckon this is what happens to the Lego masters. They get to the end of it. They get to the end, they realise it's over and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe you've experienced the exact opposite. Maybe you've had times and seasons of mourning. In fact, it's not a maybe, all of us have. And if you haven't, you will. Times of deep mourning, times of deep pain and loss where there seems no end to the heartache, to the heart-wrenching feeling of a love lost or something that you held precious in your heart coming to an end. And when you feel that feeling, and I'm very aware that some of you are feeling that feeling right now, the last thing you would call yourself is blessed. And yet here's the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mean, surely this is the most unintuitive, contradictory, nonsensical, ridiculous, stupid beatitude of the lot of them. Like this is so counter common sense. How can this be true? Like I remember the whole flying the plane upside down thing, Sam, that you opened this series with. I remember how Jesus turns everything upside down or, 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 or said better, he turns everything right side up. But this is just too much. And particularly for those who are mourning something right now as I'm speaking to you, you're like, no, I am not blessed. I worked with some titles for this message. It's not something that I usually do. I usually just like to call it whatever the thing is about, but I did workshop some titles. Here's one I thought of. Uh, the, happy, the, un, the happiness of the unhappy would be a great title for, for this message. What about the next one? The joy of sorrow. It's, it's just stupid, right? Well, there's at least two more. What's the next one? The gladness of grief. No, that, that's just dumb. That, that's, that's not, that, that sentence doesn't make sense. The last one, the bliss of the brokenhearted. They're just stupid. What, what a stupid sentence. And, and particularly when you think about Christian faith. I mean, we as Christians are meant to be marked by joy that transcends circumstance. We're meant to be happy all the time because we love Jesus and Jesus loves us. So happy, happy, joy, joy, clappy, clappy, clappy. We're happy, right? That's what faith is about. I, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. The joy of the Lord is my strength. My mourning has been turned into dancing. That's what's happened to me. So how can I, what, what's, this, what's this blessed when I mourn thing? This doesn't make any sense to me. How can I find blessing right in the middle of mourning? And, and understand that mourning isn't a word we use a lot. I'm not saying like good morning. There's a you in there. You, you guys know mourning means grief. And the Greek word that's translated here into the English word mourning is a, a form of grief that is deep. 
This isn't just, oh, I'm a bit flat today. I'm a bit sad. This is deep grief. Often this grief is accompanied by weeping. And let, let, me, let me tell you what, what I reckon is the best definition of this kind of grief. It's unhideable. Yes, that's a word I made up. This grief is unhideable. The grief, the mourning that, that Jesus is talking about here is a grief that you cannot, try your hardest, you cannot cover up. You cannot rock up the church on Sunday, happy clappy, happy joy joy, I'm doing well, life is great, trying to mask over depression or sadness or whatever. This is a grief that is so deep and gut-wrenching that you cannot hide it. But don't we try our best to hide our grief these days? Don't, don't we get sucked in uh, to this whole idea that we should be happy because, as I said, Jesus loves me, this I know for, the Bible tells me so, so I'm happy, even though inside I'm falling apart, but I'm happy because I want everyone to think I'm a good Christian. Lament is so unpopular today. Lament is not a popular thing. I mean, the, the secret to a full life is happiness. The secret to a full life is dismissing grief, getting rid of mourning, getting rid of lament, or at least keeping it to appropriate contexts so that we can live the good, happy life. Sadly, and this is the sad reality for us in particular as we think of the world, but then we think particularly of those who follow Jesus. Even though we have Psalms of lament, even though we have a whole flippant book in our holy scriptures called Lamentations, like a record of gut-wrenching, lamenting, like unhideable grief, the tone of our Western Christianity in our day is happy, joy, all together, faith for today, faith for tomorrow, everything's great. But here's the reality that we all know, I don't have to convince you of this. Try as we might to avoid it, hide it, dismiss it, replace it. Grief is still a significant part of the human experience. There isn't a human, living, breathing, breathing human that has not experienced this type of grief that apparently, according to Jesus, we are blessed to experience. Are it going to be helpful for us to take a minute to think about the different types of grief that we experience as a part of being human and particularly think about the types of grief that Jesus was thinking about when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And as much, it, like, as much as it might be helpful to cover the full scope of grief, I've got 19 minutes and 30 seconds to go. And, uh, and we're not going to do a full grief overview here, uh, but to, to target in on the mourning that I think Jesus is talking about here, the, one that, the ones that this beatitude is trying to bring into focus. And these are like, like grief at different depths. These are grief that we feel, and, and, and the depth isn't so much like the deeper the pain, but the deeper we go into ourselves and the more we look into our own heart, these different, the different levels of grief follow that pattern. So the first one I want to talk about is the grief and discomfort of choosing the harder path. The grief and discomfort of choosing the harder path that ultimately leads to blessing. So to understand, this is, this is a way you can look at this beatitude and see the reality. The harder path in life is generally marked with sacrifice and loss. And sacrifice and loss are words that I would use to, to that, that I would think and experiences I would say lead to grief and mourning. 
And this is just true in life. This is true for every human being, no matter what their faith, no matter what their creed, whether they believe in God or not. We all know that the hard road is often the best road to success, to blessing. Whether it's study, you know, studying for the exam while all your friends are out partying, that's a sacrifice, that's a cost. You're mourning the fact that you have to sit there with your head in the books while everyone else is out there having a good time. Through to the financial sacrifices we make to provide the best for our family, for those we love. There is blessing that we're hoping for as we make those sacrifices. There is blessing that we know will come as we mourn the sacrifice we have to make in the moment. But we make that choice today. We make that choice despite the personal cost or loss because it's a choice we're making that we know we'll be happy with tomorrow. We're mourning now, but we know blessing will come. That's the first kind of way that I can understand this, power, this beatitude is that sort of sense. But then there's this other sense that's a bit more raw and a bit more painful. And this is the grief of loss. And everyone in the room, just about, I would say, have experienced the loss of a loved one. A relative, a friend, close relatives, close friends who have died either just because of old age or because of some sickness or illness. All of us either have known it or will know the, the pain and some are, some are feeling that very raw pain right now. This is the sort of pain and mourning that we would never describe as blessing. I think at some level, we know the truth of statements like this, better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. But still, it's really difficult to find blessing in pain like this. I think it's what we know to be true, particularly for those of us who follow Jesus, that comfort will come. We, we know that comfort will come at some point. I'm not talking about the temporary comfort of a good day or, or re even reminiscing with good friends and family about the person that we lost. I'm not talking about that sort of comfort, as warm and as satisfying as that can be. You know, there's a temporary comfort that can never take away, that can never completely deal with the mourning we feel. We had Mother's Day a few weeks ago. Every Mother's Day, Brooke's heart is wrenched again as she remembers my mother-in-law, Lee, who died 10 years ago. You think 10 years ago, come on. No, no, every Mother's Day, every birthday, every anniversary of her death, the heart is wrenched again. There is temporary comfort, but nothing ever, nothing ever has and nothing will ever take away that heart-wrenching pain. But what I am talking about is the deep and everlasting comfort that we will know on that day when Jesus wipes every tear from our eye. That comfort that will come when He says, that in, in that day when we, we are in the restored earth with Him, with him forever and the, and the Scriptures tell us that He will wipe every tear from every eye. There'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more death and that will be a day of comfort like we have never experienced ever before. There will be blessing. There will be blessing on that day for those who have mourned. There's another type of grief that we can experience that I think relates to this beatitude. It's the grief that we feel when we turn on our TVs or open up our newspaper, or open up our news app and see the sin and the state of the world in which we live. 
I'm not sure how much you feel this, this type of mourning, but it's the same type of mourning that, felt, that God felt in His heart that moved Him to come to us and to do something about the state of the world that He saw. You turn on the news, you hear stories of natural disasters, raging wars, domestic violence, health crises, uh, strain on schools and hospitals, arguing politicians, drives me nuts. Institutional sexual abuse, cancel culture, aggressive division between left and right. This is the world we currently live in. And I don't know about you, but I don't know whether I feel mourning, but what I do feel is anger and frustration. This world is not in a good state. And it's because of sin. It's because of our rebellion from a God who loves us. It's because we've turned to our own way. And even in the church, we experience these kinds of things. Because the inclination of our heart, if you remember back a few weeks ago, is to walk away from God rather than towards Him. And as we do that, the world goes to hell. There is a mourning here. There is a pain, there's a grief here for those who have the heart of God beating in their chest. You know, the the children of God who we heard on Mother's Day are called to be peacemakers who know that that task only exists. The only reason we're called to be peacemakers is because the world needs peace. If it didn't need peace, we wouldn't be called peacemakers. And again, I'm repeating myself, but this is the kind of mourning that moved God to leave the comfort of heaven, to be born as a baby and to come into our world, to give a picture of abundant life, to give a picture of true humanity. And then the life that he lived ended in suffering and death to deal with the sin and the death that plagues us, that one day it will be gone and that all would know comfort. This is a mourning that God feels in his heart that he wants to put into us as his people. David wrote in Psalm 119 verse 136, streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. That's that heart-wrenching morning. I look around and I see the world going to hell and it's because God, you've created a good law. You've put good things before us, but we're not obeying them and, and the world is not a good place to be and it causes streams of tears to flow from my eyes. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.18, For as often as I've told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. To to be in sin is to be an enemy of Jesus. And that leads the world to go down this path that we see when we turn in our apps. But we need not linger here too long because what would be very easy to see happen, and I know know I've, I've seen evidence of this in my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I've seen evidence of my own heart, is to sit there and go, Amen, brother. The world is going to hell. And you know what? It serves them right. Let's not linger there for too long. Because we, when we do that, we start to ignore the log that is getting bigger and bigger in our own eye. As we sit in judgment of the world who's turned away from God, we can start to feel a bit superior. Look at us, we've got our lives together. 
We've not got a heart that's leading us away. We're, we're, good, we're good Christians. We're good Christian people. And so the world's going to hell. If only, they, if only they'd understand that they need to turn around and come back. You know? And all the, that's, all, that's all the thoughts that we think. But what's hap- what starts to happen for us is we don't realise how complicit we are in the world being in the state that it's in. As much as we look and judge others, Jesus said, don't call out the speck in someone else's eye lest you can't see the log in your own eye. And this brings me to the fourth kind of grief. And I reckon this is the heart of this beatitude of where Jesus wants to take us as we look at this beatitude and as we hear it. It's the mourning and the grief over the sin in me. That's where we want to get to with this beatitude. That's where we want to, it's like heart surgery that gets right into the core of the problem here. It's that, we, that God would bring us to this place of mourning over our own sin. And I'm sorry to say that's where I hope the Holy Spirit will take all of us right now. You know, the tone of these beatitudes is personal. It's not corporate. Blessed is the one. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. It's meant to be a self-examination. It's not meant to be an evaluative examining tool of everybody else. It's meant to be a mirror into your own heart. How pure is my heart? How much of a peacemaker am I? How much do I mourn over my own sin? You know, I think in most of life, just about all of life, growth comes through maturity. Growth comes from getting better. Growth comes from learning things and developing character to build on that which has happened before. So we, we get better as we do better until we reach something that we might call full maturity. And this, just, this isn't just in spiritual terms, this is in all ways of life, whether as, you know, in, all of your, in all of your roles in life, whether it's your profession or your career, in different roles of life, as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother, I can trace, I can trace my life and go, I hope today I'm a better pastor than I was 10 years ago. I hope that I'm a better father than I was 10 years ago. I hope I'm a better whatever than I was 10 years ago because I've gotten better and I'm doing better. That is the way we track maturity. That's the way we track growth. But in a slap in the face, completely counterintuitive way, that is not the pathway of spiritual growth. It's not. Let me give you a a living, breathing, well, he's not living and breathing anymore, although he is with Jesus. Let me give you an example from the life of Paul. This is someone who wrote most of the New Testament. Like the, the, the Bible that we have, he wrote most of the New Testament. And so when you look at him, you'd go, clearly he was someone who was growing. He was someone who was maturing. He's someone who reached a level that we hope to reach one day. And he did it by getting better. He got better and better and better. But as you start to look at the detail, you see this is not the case of what led to his spiritual growth. Let's track it. Let's track it. There's four statements that he makes in different letters that he wrote about himself at different stages in his growth. The first one he wrote in AD 48 uh, and he wrote this in the letter to the Galatians. So AD 48, that's, that's when they reckon he wrote this. And Paul calls himself an apostle. And listen to the description. I, I, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Okay, that's a pretty confident statement. And we believe it's true. We believe he was because we look at his life and he's not, he's not lying there. But how would you guys feel if I got up in here and said, I wasn't sent here by the elders of Gateway Baptist. I was sent here by God. I was sent here by Jesus Himself. And you will listen to me because I am Pastor Sam. 
because we live in Australia, you go, you're an idiot and I'm going to go to the church up the road. But this is Paul, like AD 48, I am an apostle. Okay, let's go to AD 55 and his first letter to the Corinthians. This is I can't, seven years later. For I am the least of the apostles. What's happened to Paul? He's gone from I am an apostle to I'm the least of the apostles. This is, he's getting better. This is seven years later. He's, ch- he's planting more churches. He's moving around the world, the known world more. He's doing more stuff. You'd think he's getting better, but he's gone from an apostle to the least of the apostles. Let's go uh, forward another eight years and get to Ephesians. Less than the least of all God's people. What is happening to Paul? An apostle to the least of the apostles. To I'm the worst of everybody. And then we don't know what date this is, but he's obviously close to dying. This is a letter he wrote to his protege, Timothy. The worst of sinners. That's who I am. What is going on for Paul? Oh my goodness. He's growing spiritually. Not by doing better. Not by doing more. But realising how broken and sinful he is. So that God's comfort can reach deeper parts of his heart. And he's growing in his love and affection for Jesus. In a world where we want others to know our personal achievements and our success and our resume and all the stuff we've done, Paul grew only in his knowledge of his own insufficiency. All this is wrapped up, I reckon, in something he wrote in Romans chapter 7. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It seems so obvious that a key part of Paul's spiritual growth was closely linked to his growing awareness of how deep sin ran in his heart. And it caused him to mourn over his own sin. This makes me think of the parable Jesus told. And I've mentioned this parable a lot uh, in my time here. Uh, This makes me think of the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And I've I've referenced this a lot. I've never actually read it. So let me read you this parable. This This is, I think, a great picture of what this beatitude is about. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Pride in his achievements, wanting everyone to know how spiritual he is. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wasn't there, he was back there. He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Let me tell you, to be justified before God is an immeasurable blessing. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Paul grew as he continued to humble himself. I am the least of the apostles. I am the least of all God's people. I am the worst of sinners. And yet God's grace and love runs even into those hidden parts of my heart that are so wretched. His grace reaches in to those places. As I think about it myself, this, this is my story. Just when I think I'm becoming more spiritual and maturing, a new gaping hole appears in my character. Just ask my beautiful wife and she'll tell you. And there is mourning. There is grief. Oh my goodness. I thought I'd move past that. I thought my ego was done with. I thought my pride was gone. I thought my anger had been dealt with. But there it is again in a much deeper way that I couldn't even understand before. But rather than feeling condemnation and judgment, God's grace and love starts to be poured into the cracks that start to open and there is comfort. But again, we don't like thinking about this stuff in our culture and in our church culture. The culture of our churches, the lament and grief and mourning, confession, repentance are not popular things. It's interesting, in 1662, if we had have lived, anyone around 1662? I don't want to. 1662, the Holy Communion service had this line in it that we would say as God's people if we lived in 1662 and we were a part of the Anglican church. Listen to this. We acknowledge and bewail. Do you know what bewail means? It means weeping, wailing, like brick man when he sent that, even, even deeper than that. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. When was the last time you acknowledged and bewailed your manifold sins and wickedness. When did we last at one of our church gatherings take a moment to acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness? It's not popular today. It's not something we talk about. But at moments through the history of God's people, significant moments of revival have been marked by this very thing. In Ezra, the, the character we named our, one of our sons after, Ezra chapter 10, verse one, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. This is mourning over the state of God's people going, we have sinned. We have moved away from God's plan. And it wasn't just a fake sort of platitude. It was a, something that caused deep, and embarrassing, weeping. Paul, again, at the end of that passage I read from Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So can I ask you, is this your story of spiritual growth? Is this true of your journey? Have your growth been directly proportional to your Awareness of your, can I say it, wickedness. And would you sit here today among all these wonderful people, taking pride in your spiritual growth and the maturity that you have developed over the years that have gone by? Maybe it's not a spiritual thing, maybe it's a professional thing, a career thing, the growth of your family. In you, there is a pride because I am getting better. I am doing better? Or are you more like Paul, 
do you see that your growth has this unintuitive but proportional relationship to realising how deep your sin runs and mourning over it that is actually your spiritual growth? Here's a quote from A.W. Tozer. He's talking about the moment in this quote, he's talking about the moment of conversion, but I reckon this is, this is not just about conversion, but this is the key to spiritual growth. What should happen in genuine conversion? What should a man or woman feel in the transaction of new birth? There ought to be that real and genuine cry of pain. There should be a birth from above and within. There should be the terror of seeing ourselves in violent contrast to the holy, holy, holy God. Unless we come into this place of conviction and pain, I am not sure how deep and real our repentance will ever be. Again, that's not just the conversion moment. That is the key to spiritual growth. But can I say a a phrase that I used before? Let's not linger here too long. Let's not linger. Did I hear an amen to that? Let's not linger here too long. I'm sorry for beating you up this morning. And let me say, I wanna be like Ezra. I wanna be the first one to go down. Let's not linger here too long either because there is joy in this beatitude. There is blessing in this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. If, we, if I left it there, we'd only be looking at the first half of the beatitude. Let's look at the other half. Why are those who mourn blessed? Jesus tells us it's because they will be comforted. Why is the gospel described as good news? This is the reason. This is the reason. There is something that happens as our sins are exposed more and more deeply before God. Like I've been saying, I couldn't help myself. It was in my notes to tell you this now and not earlier, but I couldn't help myself. The grace that God pours into the cracks that start to get exposed. Like a heart surgeon that needs to open us up and cut into us, to physically cut us open, to get to the issue of our hearts and maybe even cut into our heart to get in there. God wants to do that with us. He wants to get to the heart of the problem, not to expose us and embarrass us and condemn us, but to heal us. And I want to say to us as a campus, this this process, this is revival. This is revival. We've been praying for revival. Haven't we been throwing this word around a bit this year? Hey, some of you have been in church for decades. Has there ever been a time when we haven't prayed for revival? We've been praying for, is it coming? This is gonna be the year of revival, 1984, year of revival, 1985, year of revival, 96, oh, 1997, three years, okay, we're gonna go 1988, year of revival. You know, we just keep expecting revival, keep expecting revival. This is the key to revival. There is pain before there is blessing. It doesn't come without mourning over our sin. And it's when, like if, if we have this personally, it's per, we're being personally renewed, we're being personally revived. And I've got to say this year so far for me has been a year of personal revival because God has gone, whoosh. again, not to condemn me, not to expose me, but to pour His grace more deeply into my heart. And it's been a year of personal revival. When it becomes corporate is when He does it with a community of people like us. And it becomes a shared experience. This is a move of the Spirit. It's not as a result of me convincing you to do this. It's a move of the Holy Spirit and we've been praying, come Holy Spirit. And it's as we agree with Him, as we agree with the Holy Spirit that we are blessed as we mourn. We are blessed as we mourn our sin. And as we mourn our sin, we're led to confession and repentance. 
and then we receive the comfort. 2 Corinthians 7.10 from Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. The blessing of salvation comes as a result of sorrow that brings repentance. We feel we become aware of our in, it, at the depth of our sin. We, it comes to the surface. We, it leads to repentance. And as we repent, we receive a greater portion of salvation. That there is a future comfort for those of us who grieve loss. There is comfort for those of us who endure through sacrifice. There is an ultimate comfort that will come for all of us when Jesus returns and makes everything new, makes everything right, and we live forever with Him in that eternal city. That will be a day of comfort. But church, followers of Jesus, there is a unique and immediate, like now, right now comfort that comes to those who grieve their own sin, confessing it before their holy and heavenly Father and allowing the Comforter, which is a name that Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit, allowing the Comforter to lovingly tend our wounds. Hear the blessing. Hear the blessing. I read to you before uh, Romans 7. So I find this law at work when I wanna do good, evil is right there with me from my inner being, I delight in God's law. I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is rescue. There is comfort. There is hope. One of of the one of the uh, things that like when, when Paul got to near the end of his life and he said, I'm the worst of sinners. Here it is. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But there's more. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what happens to the heart that realises how desperate it is when it discovers the grace and love of Jesus. Worship wells up. Glory, glory to the only King, eternal, immortal, invisible, honour and glory be to Him forever and ever. Tim Keller says, He's with Jesus now. The gospel says, you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to those who said amen before, but it's true. It's true. Yet, yet, more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's love is bigger than your sin. It always has been and it always will be. There is nothing that you can separate it. Another way of saying this quote from Cal, the bad news is you're worse than you think. The good news is you're more loved than you could ever imagine. You can't imagine it. You can't get to the end of it. You can't figure it out. Just know that the God of all the heavens loves you more than you could ever understand. I'm praying that right now, for some, if not all of us, that we would have a moment like the prophet Isaiah had when he came before a holy God. That in his grace and his love for us, 
in his grace and his love for us, not because he wants to condemn or embarrass or unnecessarily expose, but in his grace and love for us, the Holy Spirit would be kind to us today and expose the depth of our sin. Not to condemn us, not to embarrass us, but to pour healing balm into those deepest parts of our heart. This was the moment for Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. What Isaiah is trying imperfectly to do here is to describe a vision of a holy, perfect, majestic God. And that's who our God is. In Him, there is no deceit. In Him, there is no evil. In Him, there is no sin. He is beyond 100% perfection. And because of that, the angels worship Him. They never stop worshipping Him. So what happens to Isaiah in a moment like this? What happens as he stands before this God? Well, I wanna tell you, I don't imagine that he stays standing for very long because this is what comes out of his mouth. Woe to me. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. How can I continue to live? My goodness, in front of a holy God, I am destroyed because of my sin. What hope can I have to stay on my feet in this moment? What can I bring to this moment? Can I bring my CV? Can I bring my resume? Can I bring my achievements and say, God, I can stand here because of all this that I've done for You? No way, no way. I picture Isaiah crumpling to the ground. Woe is me. What happens next? One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Here it comes. I'm about to be destroyed by fire. And he'd taken this coal from the tong, with tongs from the altar. Not even the angel could touch this coal and he's bringing it to me. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What Isaiah pictured in that moment is what each of us who have faith in Jesus experience permanently we can come before God, confessing our sin and repenting of those things that are deep within our hearts, knowing in, with full assurance that He will not condemn us. He will not treat us as our sins deserve. He wants to expose those things so that He can heal us more deeply. And I would love, my heart has been, my hope for us this morning is that we find blessing as we mourn over our sin. 
I wanna create a space. I wanna give opportunity for confession and repentance. I've made it as easy as possible by providing some cushions down the front. Again, I said this a lot, I don't know how this works. I, I don't know how it works. I don't know how moving out of your seat and coming down the front, there's just something about physically moving and taking up a posture before God as a symbol of where your heart's at, to go, here I am. God, create in me a clean heart. God, show me how deep my sin runs. Maybe even as I've been speaking, you become really aware of how deep your sin runs. Maybe there's some things in there that over the years have just been there and you've tried to push them down. You've tried to ignore them. People who love you, who know you well, have been trying to graciously point those things out, but they run so deep that you just go, oh, well, this is who I am. Uh, Today, Today, God wants to expose that, not to embarrass you, not to condemn you, but to heal you and give you a deeper experience of the abundant life that Jesus died to give you. And so here it is simply, there's there's no prayer team out the front. It's you and God. There's nothing, like I I didn't go along here and spray all this with cleanser. I didn't go with holy water and sprinkle it everywhere. There's nothing sanctified about down the front here. There's just an extra space here. And there's cushions if you've got old knees or young knees and you want a little bit of comfort. But there's something about putting yourself in that posture, not worrying about what other people think, not worrying about the judgment of others, but becoming before God with your heart open, saying, this is me, this is my sin. God, in Your grace, would You pour out Your Spirit and heal me deeply. So here's how it's gonna work. Ben's gonna sing. And He's gonna sing this song over us. Like you don't have to sing along with Him. You can if you want, but you don't have to. This is a song you'll know. He's gonna sing it over us. Like He's praying for us. He's speaking Jesus over us. And what I would love for you to do, if you feel in this moment, this is something that you need to do with God to move out of your chair, come down the front, take a posture before God that says, I'm mourning over my sin. Now bring your comfort. Heal me. Heal me of these things that have got their grip on me. Heal me of these habitual things that just keep me from experiencing the abundant life that you've got for me. Fill me, Holy Spirit, like that heart surgeon, get to the heart and bring the blessing that comes with mourning. I think you understand. And so here we go. This is the time. Can we, Matt, do you just mind flicking the lights off just to give a bit more comfort in the room? when you're ready. And I'm going first because I need this. I'm not just doing this to show you. I'm doing this because this is me. This is where I'm at. So when you're ready, come out of your seat, come down the front, take up the posture, pray for the Spirit to fill you and bring healing. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.